Good. Well, we're going to continue, like, like Dar said, with the Culture of Prayer series, but I really need to tell you about a blind that I put up about two months ago. Uh, I think I'm a bit handy sometimes. I like a bit of DIY, uh, get the tools out. I've got a massive toolbox, which uh, someone bought me as a wedding gift, which makes me feel really manly, which is awesome. Uh, I don't know what half the tools do, but I've got the toolbox, so that's okay. But I put up this uh, blind in a hallway, and I made sure that it, it would uh, fit in line with the, the windowsill, which was rigid. The windowsill was not going anywhere. It was absolutely square, and I was like, great, I'll get the blind, it'll all line up, be fantastic. So I did everything I was meant to do. I measured twice, cut once, you know, wisdom there, read that somewhere. And uh, I put it all up, drilled the holes, and I stepped away from it, and I squared up to it. <sighs> Blow me, it's two centimeters out, too far to the right. And I couldn't get my head around it, but I then realized my mistake. I had not taken in account for accounting for the mechanism which wound the blind up, and therefore it was two centimeters over. Unbelievable, I thought to myself. This is painful, and this is annoying, but I had to admit my error. And I'm going to tell you a bit about how that relates to today later on. But as we continue the series, we're going to look at this line from the Lord's Prayer. It says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And it ties into the line before, as Kevin said last week, and Terry Virgo said this about it. He said, for as long as we need daily bread, we shall need forgiveness. And it might seem a little bit odd to focus in on sins, but declaring this line in our prayer actually encourages us to honor our Father in heaven and realign ourselves with him through receiving his forgiveness, and giving out forgiveness to other people. And I've got three points which are, uh, are put together for this morning. You'll find them in your notes. They are uh, point one, recognize the severity of sin. Two, choose to receive and give forgiveness. And three, practice self-examination. But let me pray and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Father God, we do. We thank you so much for this morning that we can come and declare how amazing you are through gifts of the Spirit through drawing people to hear your word, and just how amazing you are through providing forgiveness for sins through your Son, Jesus. We want to glorify you this morning, and we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and speak to us while we uh, examine your word more closely. In your name, amen. So point one, recognize the severity of sin. Now, you may know that the Lord's Prayer is recorded in Matthew and in Luke, and they're both biographies about Jesus. And in Matthew's one, it says, forgive us our debts. And in Luke's, it says, forgive us our sins. But I just wanted to focus on Matthew's wording this time round, which says, debts, forgive us our debts. Because sin here is described as a debt. And we know that when Jesus is telling his disciples to read this, that it's not in there for his benefit. Because Jesus, the Son of God, is perfect. He's never sinned and never will sin. And he says to his disciples, but you need to say this because you're human and you do sin. And uh, he teaches them that actually when we sin, we cause a debt to be accrued against God. And in Colossians 2.14, it explains it this way when speaking of Jesus. By cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And the word that's translated from the Greek, um, that's the phrase record of debt, is karegraphon, 
Hopefully I've said that right. And it describes a, a written note of indebtedness, something that would have been written on, this is how much you owe as an unpaid debt. And Paul, the author of that letter to the Colossians, he uses a kind of word picture to explain this to those believers, because the image he uses is taken from one that they would have understood, perhaps, of a notice being put on a cross by the Roman authorities, which had the crime of the criminal who was being executed on it. And as we know, Jesus experienced this himself, although because he hadn't committed a crime, they wrote the king of the Jews, which was actually a true statement. And they tried to get it changed, but they couldn't. But if you're new with us this morning, you might want to ask, what does he mean by debts? And what does he mean by sins? What are these things that you name as sins? Because it's not a very popular word. Uh, most people, when we ask this question on Alpha, just look slightly confused and like they've eaten too much bread. Uh, and then, then we continue with the conversation. But I just want to explain a little bit about what the Bible describes sin as. It describes sin as law-breaking, deviation, shortcoming, rebellion, pollution, and missing one's target, all relation into God and other people. And just to ground it in our own lives, um, we've probably all done these things. We've probably all been lawbreakers. We've broken God's law, summarized in the Ten Commandments. We've told a lie at one point or another. Or we've deviated from the speed limit. Or we've had a shortcoming here or there, where we've broken a promise or been rude to someone where we're tired and hungry at the same time. And we've all rebelled or ignored someone's instruction, either as a child or an adult. And we've polluted ourselves with words through gossip or slander. And we've all missed the target. We've all aimed to do one thing, but then done another. Or aimed by saying we're going to do this and then done something different. But to, to define sin more accurately, um, I wanted to turn to a guy called Wayne Grudem, who is a famous theologian. And he says, sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Sin includes not only individual acts such as stealing or lying or committing murder, but also attitudes that are contrary to the attitudes God requires of us. As Grudem describes, these sins can take many, many forms. And sometimes they're sins where we do stuff wrong, sins of commission, and sometimes they're sins of omission, choosing not to act and not to do good, which leads us into sin. And so upon self-examination, Christians and non-Christians alike realize that they sin. And so if we've all done it, we've all offended God, we can understand that. We can get that far. In fact, even in Romans, it says we've all fallen short of the glory of God. But do we believe in the severity of sin? Do we believe that sin is actually serious? Well, sometimes when we sin, we feel guilty. It's an inward discomfort. It's a, it's a conscience being pricked. It's something that's not very comfortable. And that's the first indicator, really, that actually sin is something more than just a thing you can shrug off and throw away. It's actually something serious. And the hope would be that we're quickly convicted of this and we recognize our deviation and we go and seek forgiveness. But there's probably been times where we didn't feel guilty. And that's an indicator that we've actually lost sight somewhat of the severity of sin. And 
What more, it, uh, our eagerness to quash or the shame or the guilt associated with it kind of reveals something about us. Our eagerness to make excuses for it uh, is something, again, that leads us to believe that perhaps we're not taking it quite as seriously as we should. And we make these ex- excuses, why? To self-justify our sins. And here's some examples. If we become sentimental about sin, we might say things like, oh, you know, it's my little weakness, or oh, she knows I don't mean it really. Or maybe we laugh it off and boast about it and say, well, never was one to stick to the speed limit. Or perhaps we shift the blame. Say, yeah, I was angry, but they deserved it. <laughs> I've definitely used that one in hockey before, to be quite honest. Someone's taken the ball off me. I've got angry and I pushed them over. I didn't get the ball back. We didn't win the game. But I can say that they deserved it. It's not an excuse. I'm not taking the sin seriously enough. Others deny anything is wrong at all until the sting of the challenge is gone. But by trivializing sin and excusing it, we're kind of nullifying its severity in our minds and therefore in our hearts. And the trouble is, if we get into this habit of self-justification, we begin to lose what the knowledge of uh, the knowledge of what sin actually is. And we adopt a man-made standard for righteousness, saying, well, everybody does it. Perhaps this process of subtly numbing down and numbing out the severity of sin is summed up well by an illustration I'll read you from a guy called Mike Iaconelli. He lives in a rural community in the USA, and he uses this illustration. He says, and I won't do the accent, I don't want to offend anyone, Uh, There are lots of cattle ranches around here, and every once in a while, a cow wanders off and gets lost. Ask a rancher how a cow gets lost, and the chances are he will reply, well, the cow starts nibbling on a tuft of green grass, and when it finishes, it looks ahead to the next tuft of green grass and starts nibbling on that one, and then it nibbles on a tuft of grass right next to a hole in the fence It then sees another tuft of green grass on the other side of the fence, and so it goes round to nibble that one, and then it goes on to the next tuft. And the next thing you know, the cow has nibbled itself into being lost. So, how far are we from the farm? Have we nibbled our way away from believing in the severity of sin? If so, we need the Holy Spirit to bring us back to believing that sin is not only serious and has serious consequences, i.e. death, i.e. partition, i.e. pollution, i.e. it has a power over us. All of those things are consequences of us sinning, but more so, it grieves the heart of God. And parents, guardians, youth leaders will understand this. When your offspring decide to do something that offends you or rejects you in any way, you feel aggrieved. You grieve for that decision for them, and you go, oh, I wish they hadn't done that, or I wish they hadn't chosen that, and yet they are their own person. They can choose what to do, and I know I've seen it in my own dad's eyes when I've done it. Well, that's what happens to our Father in heaven when we sin. It grieves him. Yes, sin has consequences, but it also grieves the heart of God. And if we continue to self-justify, we'll fool ourselves into believing that we don't actually need this forgiveness from our Father and that this part of the Lord's Prayer is for other people. But if we pause and we strip away the veiled 
the excuses veiled with pride, then we kind of find that our Father knows the source of the problem anyway. In 1 Samuel 16, 7b, it says, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Our outward appearance might be one that shrugs off the seriousness of sin, but this is indicative of a heart-based problem, a sinful heart at root. Now, for the Christian, they frame all of this knowledge about sin in the context of knowing that it has been forgiven thanks to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But if you're not a Christian with us here this morning, then you are still in a place of rebellion against God until you face your tr- uh, place your trust in Jesus. The severity of sin is not to be understated. The consequences are severe. If you don't put your faith in Jesus, you face eternal separation from God. I don't know if you've ever fallen out with a friend. Or you've had a friend where something has happened, but you're not quite sure what, and then there's tension between you, and it goes unspoken for a few days, and then it's unspoken for a few weeks, and then it's unspoken for a few months, and then eventually you bump into each other because you weren't meaning to, but you actually do, and it's still awkward. It's still difficult. You can't quite relate on the same level with that person because this unspoken thing has happened between you. And if you've been in that place, you'll know that actually the time gone by has just made it harder to say, I'm sorry. And it's made it harder to admit that you were wrong when you sinned against them. Against them. And that's because our sin not only indebts us against someone else or even God but it fractures relationship as well. And that's because sin is directly opposed to what we're all about, to God and the Father. And he rightly hates that sin that happens between men and women and happens between us and God. And we have to acknowledge this. We have to acknowledge that sin is serious. And that's point one. Moving on to point two, Choose to receive and give forgiveness. And this point is kind of broken up into four, and you'll see the headings in your notes there. But if we're able to realign ourselves with God's view of sin, its severity, its ugliness, its offensiveness, if we start to take it seriously, then we must also start to take seriously the need for forgiveness from it. The need for those barriers caused by sin in relationships to be removed. And that's a choice we're all actually able to to make. But in order to choose to receive forgiveness from God and extend it to others, it may help us understand why the Father's forgiveness is so remarkable, how it turns our worldly understanding of forgiveness and justice on its head. Because you see, somewhat paradoxically, the Father's forgiveness for sin is entirely free, but it comes at an infinite cost. And I just want to explain this for a little bit, um, going into the freeness of forgiveness, the costliness of forgiveness, receiving it, and then giving it. And uh, I just want to expand a bit on the character of God for you. Now, if you know the character of our God well, you'll be aware that he's a God of pardons. He's merciful and forgiving. And a lot of people don't have a problem believing that. You might speak to non-Christian friends and they'll go, yeah, yeah, he's a God of love. He loves everyone. Yeah, love, man, just, yeah. They might do that or they might, they might not. Um, but the, the point is a lot of people don't, don't have a problem with that forgiving, loving side of God. But the problem they have is with justice, with him being fair 
as well. And we read in Exodus 34, 6 to 7, this, and it's a bit of a paraphrase, but it says that the Lord maintains love to thousands and forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And for a time during the Old Testament, this question arises, all right then, is God forgiving or is he just? And wonderfully, uh, the answer is proclaimed by Micah, among other places. Um, In chapter 7, verses 18 to 19, Micah writes this. He says, Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. If you read that a couple of times, it paints a beautiful picture in your mind of how God works both of these things out. And so we hear throughout the Old Testament that God is both forgiving and just, and then arriving in the New Testament, we receive further confirmation of this through his son, Jesus. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 7, we read, In him, that's Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. God not only recognizes the severity of our sins against him, but he also offers us a pardon through faith in his son, Jesus. This is the ultimate example of forgiveness and justice because the debt of sin we owed is paid by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, enabling justice to be done by God the Father and be satisfied. And this is what we should marvel at. This is what uh, drives believers to worship. Our Father sends his own Son to take our sins upon himself, allowing us to receive forgiveness for free. But in debt, the debt we owe God the Father is absorbed by God the Son in Jesus. Why? Because he loves us, because he is forgiving, because he is merciful, but at what cost? Moving on to the costliness of forgiveness. Now, the cost of forgiveness is probably best understood by reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. By getting to know Jesus personally, you may glean some understanding of what it actually cost him to come from heaven to earth, to live in a human body, but not sin before choosing to die on a cross and saving us. And Jesus experienced everything you experience, positive and negative. Elation, laughter, joy, but also betrayal and humiliation and pain. And it cost Jesus his life here on earth to pay the debt that we had accrued against the Father. Jesus had no debt to pay, but he took ours on himself in order to save us. The world's Enormous debt of sin against God required an infinite payment, and the only way that God could pay it was to bear it himself through his son, Jesus. And he did it all again, because he's loving, because he's merciful, because he's forgiving. He's a wonderful God. God saves us from the wrath of God in this wonderful act we call the cross. That's why people wear it. That's why when I was in Nero yesterday, I noticed that someone had it tattooed to their hand. (laughs) That's why we are asked to go on forgiving because we have received such amazing forgiveness, which brings us on to receiving. Does knowing that, does knowing all of this 
about the gospel make it easy for us to receive forgiveness? Not always. There are those who hear the good news of the gospel and say, well, this is far too good to be true. Their pride prevents them from accepting something for nothing. They want to earn their forgiveness. And I'm a bit like this, weirdly. I, well, not that, probably not that weirdly. You know how weird I am. You saw my dancing. You understand. Uh, but the, the point being, the, I, whenever I've offended someone, I am so desperate to go and make it up to them. I'll go to great lengths to go and fix the break in relationship. And all right, fair play, not every time, because I'm not, I'm not perfect, I'm not Jesus. But I'll try and do the, the things that you do to fix the problem, to, to earn my way back into their good books or earn their forgiveness. And Well, actually, that's not really how it works with God. We can't earn our way back in. We have to face the reality that there's no option to earn forgiveness from God. You couldn't do it. They couldn't keep the law in the Old Testament perfectly. They couldn't sacrifice enough goats and shed enough blood for the forgiveness of their sins eternally until Jesus came and was the perfect sacrifice and did that. And this reality we have to face is that we either accept forgiveness and receive forgiveness from God in faith alone, in Christ alone, or we reject it and we choose to condemn ourselves. We make that choice and I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, those who choose neither side, choose neither option, condemn themselves. All those that are in hell can choose to be there just by not receiving, accepting forgiveness through Jesus. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, you need to know that Jesus paid your debt too and offers you forgiveness based on his merit, not your own. Will you accept it or reject it? Now, this acceptance isn't passive. We either actively receive that forgiveness by believing in Jesus or we reject him. But by doing nothing or denying, we're denying his claim to be God. We must actively receive forgiveness. Lastly, in this section, giving, giving forgiveness. Jesus taught us to pray this. He taught us to pray and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And when we pray this, we acknowledge that receiving and giving go hand in hand. St. Augustine referred to this as the terrible petition because we invite God to deal with us in the same way that we deal with others. The measure of forgiveness that we extend to others is the measure that we should expect to receive from God. But forgiveness is hard. When someone's really hurt you, you want to get even, don't you? You don't really want to hear, forgive as the Lord forgave you. From Colossians 3.13. However, it's only when believers acknowledge just how much we've been forgiven that we fully appreciate why we must forgive others. And this is most clearly seen through a parable that Jesus tells in chapter 18 of Matthew's gospel, and it's called the unmerciful servant. Perhaps you can read it in life groups in the week to come, but I'll just summarize the parable for you because we don't have uh, enough time to go into it. But in the parable, there's a king and the king forgives an enormously large debt, one that could never be, re be repaid by one of his servants. Later, however, that same servant refuses to forgive a small debt of another man that he knows. The king hears about this and rescinds his prior forgiveness. And Jesus concludes by saying, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. When we recognize the severity of sin and 
what we've been saved from and what, how great our debt of sin was against God, we can then demonstrate how grateful we are. And we can demonstrate our faith by choosing to forgive others that have sinned against us. And if we refuse to do this, if we refuse to forgive other people, we will suffer the consequences, we'll become imprisoned by our own unforgiveness. Which is why phrases like, I'll never forgive them for this, or that's just unforgivable, should be foreign to us who believe in Christ. There's a wonderful example of um, how to forgive someone that comes from a, a lady called Corrie Ten Boom, who many of you will know. And uh, I encourage you, if you've got time, to look up on YouTube her How to Forgive sermon. I'm just going to read you an excerpt from it so you can get your head around how uh, this extension of forgiveness to others is possible through Jesus, through faith in Jesus. Corrie Ten Boom said this when she was in Berlin. When she was in Berlin, she saw one of the guards who had been at a concentration camp, which she had been imprisoned in. And that guard that she'd seen hurting her sister and her mother had become a Christian since the war, and he had received forgiveness for his sins. He'd even prayed for an opportunity to ask one of his victims for forgiveness. And in response to that, uh, when he came up to Corrie ten Boom and told her this, she said, I was not able. I could not. I could only hate him. And then I took one of these beautiful texts, one of these boundless resources, Romans 5.5, 5, which says, the love of God is shed abroad into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. And then I said, thank you, Jesus, that you have brought into my heart God's love through the Holy Spirit who is given to me. And thank you, Father, that your love is stronger than my hatred and unforgiveness. That same moment, I was free. And I could say, brother, give me your hand. And I shook hands with him, and it was as if I felt God's love stream through my arms. You've never touched the ocean of God's love as that you forgive your enemies. Can you forgive? No, I can't either, but he can. It's a hugely powerful sermon. It's a hugely powerful example. If you get the time to hear the full transcript, then do do that. Giving forgiveness doesn't come any more difficult than that situation, I should imagine. And even when we find it too difficult to forgive, the Father can through the power of Jesus. Giving forgiveness is hard, but it's made possible by Jesus' forgiveness of us and the power of the Holy Spirit when we ask him to help us do it. We can choose to receive forgiveness for the sins we've committed against God, and we can also choose to give forgiveness to other people through the strength of Jesus Christ. That's the end of point two. Moving on to point three. Praying this line of the Lord's Prayer helps us tear down unforgiveness. It keeps our relationships clear of blockages, and it leads us to self-examination. It leads us to search our own heart and turn confession into a joyful activity rather than a grueling and difficult one. And this is why point three is kind of like an application point. It's kind of like what to do with today's information. 
What do we do with this knowledge of severity of sin? Well, the need and the need for forgiveness and the need to extend it to others. Well, we apply it. So the first thing we need to do is make room to reflect. When we reach it in the Lord's Prayer, we need to pause and ask the Holy Spirit to come and alert us to anything we need forgiveness for and anyone we need to forgive. Terry Virgo again, he said, sin is not worth holding on to. When we confess our sins, our Father forgives us. Choose then to accept forgiveness from God. Perhaps even telling yourself when you're praying this prayer, telling yourself you are forgiven. Because a joy, uh, and that become, makes it become a joy rather than a grueling ordeal. The second application point is this, become grieved about sin before admitting and forsaking it. Now it's time to stop excusing and belittling sin. We've got to become practiced at uttering the phrase, I got that wrong and I confess. And if you get a chance to read C.S. Lewis, The Weight of Glory, there's a great chapter on forgiveness on this. But if you're not a Christian, it's time to confess that you need to be saved from sin and born again through faith in Jesus Christ. Christians, however, you've got to examine your own heart and mind in this. As Luther declared, you have to live a life of ongoing repentance, a life turning away from sin, which is easier said than done, perhaps, unless you're Luther. But then a guy called R.W. Stott noted that Christians find that they can confess their sins, but then realize they don't change very much by it. They go right back to their old habits, and he later argues in favor um, of not only confessing your sins, but forsaking them as well. And I'll just read you a brief excerpt from Tim Keller's book on prayer, which describes this really well. It says, Stott argued that confessing our sins implies the forsaking of our sins. Confessing and forsaking must not be decoupled. Yet most people confess, admit what they did was wrong, without at the same time disowning the sin and turning their hearts against it in such a way that would weaken their ability to do it again. We must be inwardly grieved and appalled by a sin, even as we frame the whole process with the knowledge of the acceptance of Christ, that it loses its hold over us. So We've got to work this out, possibly in practice this week and the coming weeks. Confessing and forsaking is key to strengthening our resolve against sin and forcing us to forcing it to lose its hold over us. And we're to admit that the sins we've committed with the mind and then renounce them, forsake them in our hearts. Um, And once again, we've got a helper here. We've got the Holy Spirit to aid us in this. The last bit of application is choosing to forgive. And we are to forgive like Christ forgave us, to keep our hearts from all bitterness, as it says in Ephesians. And for some of us, it's time to make that decision to forgive those who sinned against you. A person you may even have to forgive might be yourself. And forgiving offenders not only releases them to God's judgment, but it benefits you as well. It means that what they did can't hurt you anymore. It doesn't mean it's right, doesn't mean it's okay, but it means it can't hurt you anymore, and no bitterness can build up in your heart. And this act of obedience invites freedom to come and the barriers to be removed in relationships. And there we come to the end of point three. So in summary, conclusion, uh, we've hit point one, recognize the severity of sin. Um, uh, Point two, choose to receive and give forgiveness. And then point three, practice self-examination. And um, just referring back to the blinds that I put up. Even though I got it wrong, I can now choose to realign the blind with the windowsill. Or not. I can let it stay there, and every time I walk past it, 
It'll bug me, and every time Craig walks past it, he'll tell me that it's still not in line, and I will have to put it back. But I can choose to do that. And we've got a similar situation. We can choose to apply this line of the Lord's Prayer to our lives regularly or not. And we'll either end up honoring God and realigning our hearts with his, removing barriers in relationship between us and him and us and other people, or we won't. But we've got a choice to make. And we've got just a few minutes left uh, to do this before we close. Because it's important. If we're going to talk about forgiveness, if we're going to investigate it, if we're going to examine it, we need to apply it as well. And I just want to give an opportunity right now um, for some people to forgive others. It might even be yourself. And I'm going to invite uh, Jim to come back up. and He's just going to play uh, in the background in a moment.